Hey Lurkers, we don't have a new episode this week because I am busy preparing for the upcoming Whitehall, New York Sasquatch Festival. That is happening September 24th. I am leaving the morning of the 23rd and I'm trying to get a bunch of stuff ready. So I am releasing the episode we did about the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction. The anniversary for that abduction is actually coming up on the 19th and 20th. I believe that's Monday into Tuesday. So check out this old episode. And until next time, keep lurking. Looks like a big, big pancake with windows and rows of windows and lights of not, not not light, just one huge light. I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. It's Jamie, and welcome to episode 24 of the Lurk Podcast. Today, we're going to be looking into the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. This is not going to be a true crime episode. This is actually going to be an alien slash UFO episode because they claim they were abducted by aliens. This took place the night of September 19th. 1961, and it actually carried over into the early morning hours of September 20th. The 60th anniversary is coming up this Sunday, so that's why I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about this case. It involves Betty and Barney Hill, and to give you a little bit of background about them, Barney Hill was born in 1922 in Newport News, Virginia. He was the youngest of four children. He was a World War II Army veteran who attended Temple University after he was honorably discharged at the end of the war. He was married to a woman named Ruby Harris at the time with whom he had two kids and they later divorced. Betty was born Eunice Elizabeth Barrett in 1919. She had her master's degree in social sciences from the University of New Hampshire and she was a supervisor of the local child welfare department. The couple had been married for approximately 16 months at the time of the event, and they had been taking a spontaneous three-day trip up to Niagara Falls and into Montreal as a belated honeymoon. At the time, Betty was employed as a social worker who handled child welfare cases, and Barney was a postal worker who drove 60 miles a day and worked the night shift. Barney was 39, Betty was 42. They were an interracial couple, which at the time was not something that was common. Barney was black, Betty was white. In addition to his job as a postal worker, Barney was also a civil rights leader and Betty was a civil rights advocate. Both were members of the NAACP and they were active in the Unitarian Church. Barney was on the local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. 
Barney had also received multiple commendations for his work in the civil rights movement, including being honored for his outstanding service to the community by the governor of New Hampshire, and he was also invited to the inauguration of Lyndon B. Johnson in 1963. Also of note, Barney was a plain enthusiast, which is important just because if you're interested in airplanes, you may know a little bit more about the different types of aircraft in the area, and that does come into play somewhat in this particular case. So on the night of September 19th, the Hills were traveling home to New Hampshire from Canada. The traffic was sparse. The couple ends up stopping at a diner in Colebrook, New Hampshire for a quick snack, and they left there around 10 p.m. Barney commented to Betty that they should make it home by 2.30 or 3 a.m. The night was clear and bright with a moon that was just about full. When they were about 30 miles from Colebrook, New Hampshire, from when they left the diner, Betty notices a star or planet just to the left of the moon. This was most likely Jupiter, not Uranus. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. She became startled when she suddenly noticed another star that was bigger than the one she first noticed, and it grew larger and brighter. After watching it, she finally pointed it out to Barney. Barney stated, When I looked at first, it didn't seem like anything particularly unusual, except that we were fortunate enough to see a satellite. It had no doubt gone off course. It was quite a distance out, meaning it looked like a star in motion. The couple continued to drive, glancing at the object off and on while they drove. Barney said that they he never went over 30 miles per hour while they were driving. The Hills had a small dachshund dog named Delcy who was also traveling with them. Delcy was starting to get restless, so Betty suggested they stop to let the dog out and get a better look at the object. While Barney walked the dog, Betty grabbed their pair of binoculars. Barney still thinks it's a satellite at this point, or a star. And Betty says to him, Barney, if you think that's a satellite or star, you're being ridiculous. Barney then began thinking that the object was in fact a plane on its way to Canada. They got back in the car and continued down Route 3. Betty could tell the object was getting bigger and brighter. The road was completely deserted. Barney was hoping at that point that perhaps they would be able to see a trooper or a passing car he could flag down to compare notes about what they were seeing. It's around 11 p.m. and they're approaching Franconia Notch and Cannon Mountain. Cannon Mountain was once the home of the Old Man of the Mountain, which was a rock formation that was shaped like the head of a man. It collapsed May of 2003. I believe if you look on the back of the state quarter for New Hampshire, I think it has the Old Man of the Mountain on the quarter. They're near a picnic area when Barney saw the object turn and begin heading in their direction. He ended up parking in the picnic area parking lot. Through the binoculars, Barney could make out a shape like the fuselage of a plane, but couldn't make out any wings. He also saw lights along the fuselage shape blinking in a pattern. When it was Betty's turn with the binoculars, the object passed in front of the moon and was silhouetted. She said it appeared to be flashing... Thin pencils of colored lights rotating around an object she said looked cigar-shaped. The lights flashed red, amber, blue, and green. They also noted that the object traveled erratically in a step-like flight pattern, tilting vertically, then leveling out as it climbed in altitude or descended in altitude. They also noticed the band of lights were not continuous around the object. It occupied only half, but because of the rotating movement, it caused the blinking effect. 
Barney kept insisting it must be some type of aircraft, a helicopter, a military plane, or search plane, some some type of aircraft. And I want to note here that Betty's sister and family actually saw a UFO in Kingston, New Hampshire, a few years before. Betty had confidence in her sister and believed her story. Barney didn't really believe or disbelieve. He didn't really have an opinion either way. He was more skeptical about UFOs. He wasn't really certain that they even existed. So Betty handed the binoculars to Barney and took the dog back to the car. Barney looks at the object again, and he notices it suddenly began curving around, heading toward their direction. This puzzled Barney because no airliner should suddenly decide to change its course. It almost seemed like the object saw them and was coming to investigate. Their car was the only one on the highway. It was also in an area where it was mostly uninhabited. And Barney was so unnerved, he took his 32 caliber pistol from the rear trunk and ended up putting it under his seat. He put it under the driver's seat because he was so unnerved about the whole thing. He also said it, it almost seemed like they were circling them. So Barney gets back in the car and says the craft has seen them and they begin driving again. The craft moved ahead of them and was huge. It had appeared to be spinning previously and now had stopped and the multicolored lights were just one white light. Betty looks at it through the binoculars again while they're driving and realizes the streak of white is actually windows. She watches as a red light appears on each side of the object and she tells Barney to stop the car and look. The lighted edge was a row of windows that had a cold bluish white almost fluorescent type glow and it was hovering at a slightly tilted angle and as I said it was no longer spinning. The object came down over a clearing on the right-hand side and pulled in front of the car and stopped midair to the right of the highway. It was about 80 to 100 feet above the ground, no more than a few hundred feet away. Barney looked through the windshield and couldn't and could see it clearly as it was only a couple hundred feet above the road and descending. Barney stops the car basically in the middle of the road and gets out to look at it with the binoculars. He has left the headlights on and the engine is still running. They're about 2.3 miles north of Woodstock at this point in time. Barney reaches under his seat and grabs the gun and he puts it in his coat pocket. Betty handed him the binoculars and tried to look through and he tried to look through the windshield. Then he opened his door and stepped out. Using the car roof to steady his arms, Barney uses the binoculars to observe the object. When Barney ended up stepping away from the car, the object moved 100 feet to a field to the left, passing about only 100 feet in front of the car. He still was thinking this might be some kind of military helicopter messing with them, but he was amazed at the ease with which it moved and that there was absolutely no sound coming from it. So Barney at this point, it's only 100 feet away. It's shaped like no other aircraft they've ever seen, and he's still trying to say it is an aircraft. Perhaps it's a military helicopter. It's messing with them, but it's completely soundless. It makes no noise, and it doesn't move like any other aircraft he's familiar with. Barney walked out across the road into the field toward the craft, stopping periodically to use the binoculars. He watched as the object began descending slowly in his direction. He could see about 8 to 11 separate figures watching him, and they seemed to be standing in a corridor that encircled a central section. There was a burst of activity, and figures moved hurriedly around, turned their backs, and acted as if they were pulling levers on the wall. One figure remained at the window. In the meantime, Betty was leaning across the seat of the car, watching Barney and looking for cars because they were basically in the middle of the road. 
She heard Barney say over and over, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And this is ridiculous. Here's a brief clip from Barney Hill's hypnosis tape illustrating just how scared he was. I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. God, I'm scared. It's all right. You can go right on experience it. It will not hurt you now. I got to get my gun. Oh! You got my gun! All right. All right. Betty shouted for Barney to come back. Barney, come back here, you damned fool. According to Barney, the figures were human form, wearing shiny black uniforms and black caps with bills. Their movements and actions reminded him of the precision of German officers during World War II, moving slowly and efficiently. They showed no emotion except one who looked over its shoulder and smiled. The craft filled up the entire field of vision in the binoculars. Barney was frightened by the leader at the window, and he could feel the intense concentration to do something that was seemingly coming from this leader, this person that stayed to watch them through the window. Barney believed at this point they were going to be captured. This is when he realized this was something alien, and the UFO is at this point 50 to 80 feet above the ground and only 75 to 100 feet away from the car. No light fell on the ground from the craft. The shape was evident at this point. It was big. It was as big as a jet, but shaped like a pancake. Barney panics. Betty, who was more concerned with his safety than watching the UFO, said Barney ran towards the car, laughing or crying hysterically, repeating, they're going to capture us. They're going to capture us. He then leaped into the car and stepped on the gas and sped off. The object shifted again and was right above the car. Barney is driving at high speeds and has Betty keep an eye on the object. She rolls down her window and looks up, but sees nothing, even though Barney is pretty sure that it's above them. The car traveled a short distance when they began hearing a rhythmic beeping or buzzing sound that seemed to bounce off the trunk of the car. And... It was rhythmic, almost as if it was in some type of code. The car vibrated, and a tingling sensation went through their bodies. Each beep caused the car to vibrate. The hill said that at this point, their minds dulled, and they seemed to be in an altered state of consciousness. Another series of beeping and buzzing noises occurred, and the couple came back to their senses. They discovered that they had traveled about 30 to 35 miles further down the road with only spotty memories of making a sharp sudden turn, encountering a roadblock, and seeing a red orb in the road. The Hills arrived home at dawn, specifically right around 5 a.m., and they had some odd impulses they couldn't explain. They insisted that the luggage be kept near the back door instead of in the main part of the house. Barney was concerned about radiation poisoning and left other items from the car on their porch for quite a while. Both of their watches had stopped working and they would never start working again. The leather strap on the binoculars was torn, though Barney couldn't remember how it happened. The toes of Barney's shiny dress shoes were scraped. 
Barney was compelled to examine his genitals, though he found nothing unusual. They both took long showers to remove possible contamination, and each drew a photo of what they had observed. They tried to reconstruct the timeline as they witnessed the UFO, but immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories became incomplete. After they both slept for a few hours, Betty notices the dress that she had been wearing was torn at the hem, zipper, and lining. She also noted a pinkish powder on it. She is said to have hung the dress out on the clothesline and the powder blew away. She ended up throwing the dress away, but then thought better of it and took it out and she kept it in her closet. Betty decides to call her sister Janet, who is the one who had her own UFO experience in 1957. And at the time when she calls Janet, the police chief was actually visiting Janet and he's the one who advised Betty to call the Pease Air Force Base which she ends up doing. Also, the car had shiny circles on the trunk that had not previously been there prior to their experience. Janet, Betty's sister, is actually the person who suggests inspecting the area of the car to see if they might be magnetized. And when they took a compass and moved the compass near the circles, the needle would actually spin rapidly around. So Betty calls the Pease Air Force Base and... The person that she speaks to is interested in what she has to say, particularly in the mention of the fins that they saw on either side of the craft, because this was something new that they hadn't heard of before. The next day, she gets a return phone call from Major Paul Henderson. During their interview, Henderson supposedly tells the Hills about an anomaly the Pease Air Force Base radar had picked up around 2.14 a.m., which fits within the timeline the Hills are able to outline. Also, according to the Hills, Henderson told them that the government knows of the existence of UFOs and the Air Force is interested in finding out more information about them. Henderson's report is dated September 26th and determined that the Hills just misidentified Jupiter. His report was forwarded to the Project Blue Book. The Hills actually withheld some of the information about their experience when they talked to Major Henderson. Specifically, they did not mention that they had seen humanoid creatures. This is when Betty begins researching and she starts checking out several different books and purchasing several different books about UFOs. This is the time she comes across a book that was written by Donald E. Kehoe, who is a retired Marine Corps major. He's also the head of NICAP, the National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomena. So she sends him a letter, and I have that letter here that I'd like to read. Dear Mr. Kehoe, the purpose of this letter is twofold. We wish to inquire if you have written any more books about unidentified flying objects since The Flying Saucer Conspiracy was published. If so, it would certainly be appreciated if you would send us the name of the publisher, as we have been unsuccessful in finding any information more up-to-date than this book. A stamped, self-addressed envelope is being included for your convenience. My husband and I have become immensely interested in this topic, as we recently had quite a frightening experience, which does seem to differ from others of which we are aware. About midnight on September 20th, we were driving in a national forest area in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. This is a desolate, uninhabited area. At first, we noticed a bright object in the sky which seemed to be moving rapidly. 
we stopped our car and got out to observe it more closely with our binoculars. Suddenly, it reversed its flight from the north to the southwest and appeared to be flying in a very erratic pattern. As we continued driving and then stopping to watch it, we observed the following flight pattern. The object was spinning and appeared to be lighted only on one side, which gave it a twinkling effect. As it approached our car, we stopped again. As it hovered in the air in front of us, it appeared to be a pancake in shape, ringed with windows in the front through which we could see bright blue-white lights. Suddenly, two red lights appeared on each side. By this time, my husband was standing in the road, watching closely. He saw wings protrude on each side. The red lights were on the wingtips. As it glided closer, he was able to see inside this object, but not too closely. He did see many figures scurrying about as though they were making some hurried type of preparation. One figure was observing us from the windows. From the distance this was seen, the figures appeared to be about the size of a pencil and seemed to be dressed in some type of shiny black uniform. At this point, my husband became shocked and got back in the car in a hysterical condition, laughing and repeating that they were going to capture us. He started driving the car. The motor had been left running. As we started to move, we heard several buzzing or beeping sounds which seemed to be striking the trunk of our car. We did not observe this object leaving, but we did not see it again. Although about 30 miles further south, we were again bombarded by these same beeping sounds. The next day, we did make a report to an Air Force officer who seemed to be very interested in the wings and red lights. We did not report my husband's observation of the interior as it seems too fantastic to be true. At this time, we are searching for any clue that might be helpful to my husband in recalling whatever it was he saw that caused him to panic. His mind was completely blacked out at this point. Every attempt to recall leaves him very frightened. We are considering the possibility of a competent psychiatrist who uses hypnotism. This flying object was at least as large as a, f- as a four-motor plane. Its flight was noiseless, and the lighting from the interior did not reflect on the ground. There does not appear to be any damage to our car from the beeping sounds. We both have been quite frightened by this experience, but fascinated. We feel a compelling urge to return to the spot where this occurred in the hope that we may again come in contact with this object. We realize this possibility is slight, and we should, however, have more recent information regarding developments in the last six years. Any suggested readings would be greatly appreciated. Your book has been of great help to us and a reassurance that we are not the only ones to have undergone an interesting and informative experience. Very truly yours, Mrs. Barney Hill. In November, Betty begins having vivid dreams. And here's a clip of her talking about some of what she recalled about what those dreams revealed. I was taken into the first room, Barney into the second room, where we were given a as the leader, as I call him, gave us testing. There were 11 beings, and for purposes of identification, I called one the leader, because he seemed to be in charge of the project of doing this testing, and he was the only one who spoke English. Then there was the examiner who did the testing, and then there were nine others we called crew members. They stayed outside the room in the corridor. Our examinations were very much similar in that With both Barney and I, they checked our eyes, ears, nose, throat, took samples of our hair, fingernail, and they scraped our skin. With me, they touched my body with little points on wires. They said he was checking my nervous system. And then they attempted to insert a needle-like instrument in my navel. 
I objected that it would hurt, and he said it shouldn't hurt. When he did this, it caused a great deal of pain. He said it was a pregnancy test, and I said, well, that's no pregnancy test here. Basically, Betty recalls being taken aboard the craft and having experiments done on both of them. While some claim this information came more from her research than an actual memory, it's important to note that while sightings of UFOs were happening more and more, this was the first time someone had been abducted and there was no information like this for her to pull from. Actually, there were several abduction cases. Most of them actually happened in South America, but I don't believe they had been written about at this point in time. So there really was no book. Like she mentions to Kehoe in her letter, she's looking for more recent information from within the last six years. So the publications that she's finding are older published books about the phenomena. So in the meantime, the letter Betty Betty has written is given to Mr. Webb, who is an aspiring astronomer and a member of NICAP. He shows up and he interviews the Hills for six hours, having them recount every detail they could remember. His report totaled 60 pages and was finalized in 1965. Webb said that he genuinely believed the Hills. Air Force Major James McDonald, who was an old friend of Barney's, also believed the couple. He was a UFO enthusiast and had 18 years in the Air Force and was also once a member of the CIA. He was also a United States Air Force consultant and had been investigating various plane disappearances. He told the Hills a UFO was involved in the disappearance of six planes off the Florida coast December 5th, 1945. This is, of course, Flight 19 that we mentioned in Episode 23, The Men in Black. It's the incident that Albert Bender became fascinated with, and it's the incident that sparked Albert Bender's interest in UFOs. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend going back and listening to Episode 23. So McDonald, he often would be present for a different interviews to offer support for the Hills as their story was starting to gain some popularity. NICAP members were fascinated with the story and the Hills were interviewed by two more NICAP members. The biggest issue, however, was the block of missing time and this is when hypnosis was discussed more seriously. So a few months after the abduction, Barney develops a ring of warts around his genitals. Many believe this was a sign of experimentation while others thought it was psychosomatic. He actually required three minor operations to remove them. Sadly, after being sober for 10 years, Barney started drinking again. He also ended up with an ulcer and developed high blood pressure. He was suffering from anxiety and was uneasy about the job he once enjoyed. Betty believed that the fact Barney had to travel at night to Boston to his postal job was causing him the anxiety because of what happened to them. Ultimately, the disturbing and traumatic events that event that happened finally compelled the Hills to discuss the sighting with a Dr. Quirk in March of 1962. He was a psychiatrist, and he was already familiar with the UFO subject. He believed the Hill's story and also ruled out simultaneous hallucination as the explanation for this. Bothered by his drinking, Barney visits another psychiatrist, a Dr. Duncan Stevens. Dr. Stevens agreed with Dr. Quirk's assessment that simultaneous hallucination was unlikely in this case. Also, both doctors agreed that at this point, hypnosis was not the best option right then because of Barney's high anxiety. They were concerned about how he would react under hypnosis. Late in the next year, because of Barney's continued emotional trouble and Betty's concern about her abduction dreams, Dr. Stevens feels hypnosis should be pursued. During the hypnosis sessions, Barney actually experienced severe anxiety 
And whenever they re-listened to the tapes, Betty broke out in hives. It was a Dr. Benjamin Simon who placed them both under hypnosis. I do have the accounts of both of their hypnosis examinations and what they divulged during them. So Betty Hill's account of her examination. Mrs. Hill was left with a doctor or examiner and the man who spoke to her on the way to the ship. As she looked around the room, she noticed an examining table, stool, cabinet, equipment in one corner, and a bright bluish overhead light. The doctor sat her on the stool. He brought over an instrument like a big microscope and held it close to her left arm. He seemed to be inspecting the skin under close magnification. He then took a long instrument like a letter opener and scraped skin cells from the arm. The samples were given to the leader, who placed them on a plastic-like material and wrapped them up. The doctor looked at her eyes with a light, opened her mouth, and looked at her throat and teeth, and swabbed her left ear, removing a scraping and wrapping it up as before. He pulled out and cut off some strands of hair from her head. These were preserved. The hands were looked at, the fingers were scraped under the nails, and clippings removed. The doctor took her shoes off and looked at her feet. Next, he unzipped her dress. Mrs. Hill removed the dress, leaving her clothed in a slip. She then lay down on the table on her back while a machine was pulled over. The device was equipped with wires running to a cluster of needles. The doctor explained that he wanted to check her nervous system and assured her there would be no pain. He proceeded to touch the needles at various points all over her body, using one or more of the needles at a given spot. She was rolled over on her stomach where her back and spine were checked with the needles. The slip was pulled up for the back tests. Although the needles caused occasional muscle reactions, this part of the examination was painless. The examiner then picked up a long needle and explained to Mrs. Hill that it was a pregnancy test and would not hurt. She asked him what kind of a pregnancy test could be performed with the needle. He did not reply and suddenly inserted the needle in her navel. She felt a sharp pain which completely surprised both men. The leader quickly bent over Mrs. Hill, passed his hand over her eyes, and at once the pain disappeared. Mrs. Hill felt very grateful to the leader for this and began to trust him for the first time. The leader said they had not known she would suffer pain from the test. If they had known, they would not have performed the test. Mrs. Hill declared the needle was no pregnancy test. The testing on Betty Hill ended there. While the doctor left the room to attend to Barney Hill, the leader put all the samples into a drawer and handed Mrs. Hill her shoes and dress. She put them on and he zipped up the dress for her. While they were waiting, Betty said she carried on quite a conversation with the leader, which may have been the same figure who frightened Barney in the first encounter and who guided him to the landing site. She told him this had been quite an experience. He regretted having frightened them, but said they did all they could to lessen it. She said she was all right now and was in enjoying the chance to talk with him. No one would ever believe her, she said, and she suggested he give her something to take back as concrete proof of the experience. He agreed and told her to look around for something to take. She noticed a book on top of the cabinet and asked if she could take that. He consented. In the book, Mrs. Hill found symbols of of some sort written in columns. Then she asked him where he came from and he asked her if she knew anything about the universe. She said no. He walked across the room and touched something on the wall. The wall opened, exposing a map which he pulled down. This chart, according to Betty, showed nickel-sized dots and tiny dots connected by curved lines. Heavy black lines indicated trade routes between planets. Some of these went from the planet one planet to another in a series of lines. Light lines were routes to planets or stars occasionally visited. Broken lines were expeditions or exploration trips to distant bodies. 
The leader asked Mrs. Hill if she knew where she was on the map. She laughed and admitted she didn't know. Then he declared there would be no point in showing her where he was from, and with that he rolled the map back up. About this time, the doctor returned with some excited crew members and Barney's teeth. He opened Betty's mouth and pulled at her teeth. He was puzzled that, Be- that Barney's teeth were removable and yet hers were not. Mrs. Hill laughed over this and explained that Mr. Hill had dentures, that people lose their teeth with old age. Apparently, everyone on board was amazed by the false teeth and shuttled back and forth between Barney and Betty. Then the examiner asked her what old age was. She said that the human lifespan is about 100 years, but that people usually die at age 65 to 70 from body degeneration and disease. He wanted to know what a year was, and although she could not define it exactly, she said it was a way to measure time. What did we eat, he wished to know. She told him, and then he wondered what vegetables looked like. What was her favorite vegetable? She described squash as one of her favorites. What did it look like? It was yellow. What is yellow? She had a difficult time trying to explain all this, since the examiner did not understand the meaning of the words she was using. Mrs. Hill told the leader her knowledge was very limited, but there were other people who would like to talk with him. She even suggested if he could come back, she would try to find these people and arrange a meeting. He replied it was not his decision to make, but if they chose to come back, they would find her. How would they find her, asked Betty. We always do, answered the leader. Several men appeared with Barney in the corridor. When the leader and Betty stepped into the corridor, the men began to talk amongst themselves excitedly. The leader went over, talked with the group, and then came back. He took the book. Mrs. Hill cried at this point during hypnosis. She protested that the book was her only proof. He explained that the others objected. It was decided that no one should learn of this experience, and even she would not remember it. Betty became angry and told the leader he could take the book, but she would never forget the experience. Somehow she would remember. He replied that she might remember, but no one would believe her. In any case, he said, Barney would not recall any of the experience. If by chance he did, his story would be difficult different, leading to confusion, doubt, and disagreement. He advised her to just forget everything if she, if she should remember, since it, sh- since it could be very upsetting. Next, I have the account of Barney's examination that he revealed under hypnosis. Mr. Hill opened his eyes for a quick peek at his surroundings and saw that he was standing before a table in a clean, wedge-shaped, wedge-shaped operating room, which was illuminated with a pale blue light. He could see a cabinet of some kind in the room. Several men were standing there. He closed his eyes again. After he was placed on the table, his shoes were taken off and his pants pulled down slightly. He felt a cup-like device placed around his genitals and believed a sperm specimen was somehow withdrawn. His left arm was scraped for skin cells and his ears and throat were checked. He was rolled over on his stomach. A cylindrical object was inserted up the rectum, and once again the witness believed something was extracted. Both Barney and Betty heard the crew members talk amongst themselves. Barney described the voices as a mumbling or humming sound. Betty simply said the words or tones were not understandable. Barney thinks they communicated with him totally by thought transference, while his wife was uncertain whether she was spoken to verbally or mentally. Both witnesses are sure they spoke to their captors verbally. The Hills felt they were in the ship between 30 and 40 minutes. Mr. and Mrs. Hill were led from the ship down the path toward the car. They were told to wait in the car until the ship took off. Crew members accompanied them part of the way and then turned back. Barney opened his eyes. Already he was forgetting what happened and began to wonder why he was in the woods. He turned and saw Betty coming down the path by herself. Why was she in the woods too? When he reached the car, he noticed the motor was off and the lights were out. He opened the door and sat down. 
on the gun. Then he found their dog, Delcy, trembling under the seat. Betty, feeling very happy and relieved, arrived, opened the door, and asked her husband to come out and watch. Barney came out and joined Betty next to the car. She picked up the trembling dog and held it as they waited for the ship to take off. The object was dark at first, then it began glowing orange again, becoming brighter and brighter. It lifted off, dipped behind a ridge. To Betty, it looked like a ball rolling off the ridge, and then shot up into the sky at an angle, dwindling to a point in a matter of seconds. The couple got into the car, and Barney started driving. Apparently, Betty's memory of the abduction was fading, too, and so neither witness spoke to the other about being on board a UFO. They drive back to US-3. In the Ashland area, Betty broke the silence, asking her husband, Do you believe in flying saucers now? He replied, Oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. That wasn't a flying saucer. Both claim at once they heard five or six beeps on the rear trunk. Those are details of the abduction as they were told during hypnosis and i have a clip barney while under hypnosis relaying the information that i'm going to play for you now i don't want to be operated on you don't want to be operated on what makes you think of an operation i don't know You were thinking about this when you were there on the road? I was thinking about this when I was lying on my stomach. Where were you lying on your stomach? I... I thought I was inside something, but I did not dare open my eyes. I had been told to keep my eyes closed. Who told you that? The man. What man? That I saw through the binoculars. Was this one of the men in the road? No. Who were these men in the road? What part did they play in it? They took me and carried me up this ramp. Did you feel you were going to be operated on? my eyes and there is the car 
and the lights are off and it is not running and Dossie is under the seat and I reached under and touched her and she is in a tight ball under the seat and I sit back and I see Betty is coming down the road and she gets into the car and I am grinning at her and she is grinning back at me and we both seem so elated and we are really happy and I'm thinking it isn't too bad. How funny. I have no reason to fear. And we look and I see a bright moon. And I laugh and say, well, there it goes. <laughs> and I'm happy. While she was under hypnosis, Betty actually drew a star map that was later determined to be possibly the Zeta Reticuli star system. And this was considered evidence that she had seen seen some type of star map. Eventually, their story made it into the papers and they reached a celebrity status. Sadly, February 1969, Barney died from a cerebral hemorrhage that was brought on by high blood pressure and alcoholism. Also, episode 23, Men in Black, this was brought up briefly in the account of Dr. Hopkins, where he was visited by a man in black, not Johnny Cash, who asked him if he knew Barney Hill. The doctor said yes, he did, and the mysterious man said that Barney didn't have a heart, much like the doctor no longer had a coin, and was kind of insinuating that somebody had killed Barney Hill, and that possibly the doctor would be next. There's slightly a little bit more detail with that in that episode 23, The Men in Black, which was last week's episode. So definitely check that out if you haven't listened to that already. Everything is related. Everything is connected. It's like every time I do research... I'm amazed at how many things line up with other things. And to be honest, when I researched the Men in Black, I was not expecting there to be a mention of Barney Hill. I already had the Betty and Barney Hill episode planned for today because today is just a couple days shy of the 60th anniversary. So then after this was scheduled, I researched the Men in Black. I find mention of Barney Hill, and then while I'm while I'm researching Betty and Barney Hill, I find mention of Flight 19 by one of the Hill's biggest supporters. And Flight 19 is mentioned in the Men in Black because that was Albert Bender's big doorway into his UFO interest. Definitely check out that episode if you haven't done so already. So Barney dies in 1969. There's a lot of speculation that went on trying to explain what happened, basically trying to explain it away. One popular theory was that it was the stress from being an interracial couple that caused this break from reality. But even though it was uncommon 
to have an interracial marriage in the 1960s. Betty and Barney actually lived in a more liberal area that was more accepting, and both of their families were accepting of their marriage. In fact, After Barney's death, Betty actually never remarried, saying that their love was never ending and she had no interest in marrying again. I kind of discount that thought because if you have such a strong relationship, you don't want to get remarried after the other person's death and your families are accepting and the area you live in is accepting. I just don't see that that's a plausible explanation. Over the years, Betty actually continued her research into UFOs. It was mentioned that both of them actually became members of NICAP after their experience. But after Barney's death, Betty continued her research into UFOs and actually continued to see UFOs and have experiences after the fact. She apparently had dozens of UFO sightings over the years. Uh, Many people believe she was the driving force behind their experience that she and her dreams influenced Barney's unconscious and that he had PTSD from the war and his anxieties from that ended up allowing him to create this similar account of what happened under hypnosis. Hypnosis is a funny thing and it's really hard to say, but I kind of err on the side that something happened to them. Definitely most people are in agreement. The first portion of this encounter, the portion where they are fully cognizant of what happened when they see the object, they see it flying, they're watching it in the binoculars, that that's the part that is 100% believable. It's the part that came out during hypnosis that is the uncertain part of things. Were they abducted? I don't know. Betty ended up passing away in 2004 due to cancer. In the years since, her niece has continued to vouch for her aunt and uncle and even published a book and has written multiple blogs in support of their credibility. Many UFO believers have supported their story, have tried to back it up with evidence. The star map to Zeta Reticuli remains the most solid piece of evidence, but even that has some flaws in it. The dress that Betty had been wearing that she saved, the one that had been torn, she had claimed was covered in pink powder. It actually was eventually tested decades after the fact, and the test results came back inconclusive, stating that the dress contained evidence of some kind of protein, none of which matched up with the Hill's DNA. Her dress, along with the with photos, things, sketches that they drew, her diaries, everything like that, actually ended up being donated to the University of New Hampshire, which was her alma mater. And it's it was at one point on display there. And just a couple little tidbits about the area. In 1960, NICAP recorded seven sightings in the New Hampshire area. Six of those seven actually occurred in the White Mountain area, which is the area that they were in when they had their experience. In 1965, Betty's nephew saw a strange object in the sky and he got his siblings and his mother and they came out to watch it move around before it shot off. There are actually, as I had mentioned before, other abduction reports similar to the Hill incident, including one that happened in Brazil. Most of those abduction reports happened in South America. Some of them the people returned and some of them the people are still missing and their bodies have never been found. And one last little piece of information is a report 
that says there was no indication that the Hills were ever contacted by the Air Force after this report was filed. This is particularly strange since Project Blue Book files show that a UFO was spotted and tracked by Air Force radar operators at nearby Concord Air Force Base, Vermont, less than seven hours prior to the Hills sighting. Another UFO was sighted by Pease Air Force Base Precision Approach Radar only two hours following the Hill visual sighting. The report of the first radar sighting was not wired to the Project Blue Book staff at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base until nearly three days after the actual sighting took place. Personnel at the Concord Air Force Base, Vermont, sent their TWX on 22 September 1961. The radar sighting took place on the 19th of September at, it looks like, possibly 922. The report of Betty and Barney Hill sighting containing an additional comment regarding the UFO spotted and tracked by the Pease Air Force Base radar was not wired to Project Blue Book headquarters, despite the fact that it was normal United States Air Force policy to do so. Instead, the Directorate of Administrative Services at Pease Air Force Base mailed the information to Project Blue Book on September 29, 1961, eight days after the original Hill report was filed, an accompanying memo sent by Pease Air Force Base explained that non-availability of observers for early interrogation precluded electrical transmission of report. This is a particularly puzzling statement since the Hills were readily available for interrogation at any time. Conversations with the Hills were concluded on September 21, 1961. There actually were two unidentified flying objects picked up on radar, one by Concord Air Force Base, the other by Pease Air Force Base. The one by Pease Air Force Base happened at 2.14 a.m., and this is actually within the time frame of their missing time. So there actually was something indicated on radar. I'm sure you can guess that it was explained away by being a weather balloon. However, even though they said they were going to check on it being a weather balloon, no one actually did any kind of checking to see if there was any weather balloon activity at that time frame. So I think that is going to do it for this episode. We're going to end on that little weather balloon note there. And as always, you can find us at lurkpodcast.com. There we have all of our episodes posted. You can also find all of the directories we're listed on. You can find us on, on any of them, wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcast. Also on our website, we have the links to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I highly recommend that you like or follow any or all of those. I try to post photos and different things associated with episodes. Anything paranormal that I think is amusing or might be of interest to anyone I post on there, and I share any events that we may be attending. Speaking of events that we are attending, September 25th coming up is the Sasquatch Calling Festival in Whitehall, New York. There is currently over 60 vendors. There are several speakers. I will be speaking there. And there's going to be a Sasquatch beer garden. Looks like tons of fun. Come on out. Say hi. I will have some t-shirts and sweatshirts there available for purchase. It just looks like a really great event. So if you're in the area, I highly recommend going out to check it out. Also, we have merch. I will have some at this event, but you can also purchase it online at lurkpodcastmerch.com. You can find that link in our show notes. You can also find that on our Facebook page. I think that's pretty much it for the information I need to share. So as always, 
keep lurking.